So good evening. It's always such a hearty response when I say that before before I talk. <laughs> I won't take it personally. I could. <laughs> so the success of your practice is that you're still here after a second day of practice and um, the first day of doing metta practice and um, as you may as many of you may have seen uh, these practices are somewhat simple but not so easy not so easy to keep the mind keep the attention uh, with the breath with a phrase, with our hearts, with simply what's happening in the moment. So I applaud you for your practice and your effort to, um, to do this work. It's, it's work. This is spiritual work. It's spiritual graft. Nobody said this spiritual life was easy. Or maybe somebody did, but they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> in my experience, anyway. You know, there's some quote, I think it's from Jung, who, or somebody who, you know, there's some prayer, you know, that you ask, you know, be careful what you ask for, you know, if you ask for, you know, enlightenment or awakening. Uh, and the story goes, you know, be careful because God will put you on his anvil and thrash you like gold, you know, to, to form the beauty and the image of God, uh, that you will be worked, that you will be put through the fire, put on the anvil. And um, so I know some of you, from what we heard in the groups today, are feeling some of that. So I'm going to start with a story, um, if I can read it, <laughs> which I barely can. Um, I don't have glasses. You have glasses? Oh. <laughs> I'm slowly coming to, the, to terms with aging. <laughs> slowly. I'm in denial, actually, is what I am. <laughs> Ooh, Nirvana. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't help. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see what we do. I just need to borrow the person, if I can use your arms. <laughs> Here in a neonative intensive care unit, you see incredible beauty and incredible pain, and you have to figure out how to be with both the children are beautiful because you get to know them. You, you can't nurse them, really nurse them, without knowing them. And you can't know them, really know them, without seeing their beauty. And what can be more beautiful than, in, than innocence? It was the use of machines and extraordinary medical measures that moved several of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't there, though, 
there was that tendency to keep it impersonal, keep your distance. And you knew that wasn't any good for the children, at least for the ch- not least for the children at all. So a group of us began to talk and to be with the children more. And when it got too hard and we'd break down and support each other and talk it over. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began this new practice of holding infants when the time would come for them to die. It wasn't a discussion as much as something we'd become ready to do. So at the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker. And we'd sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart holding them. Sometimes you can feel them go. And the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitors as brain death. In your arms, it's heart and breath. You feel 10 dozen things at once. Terrible sadness because you become attached to the child, but glad too because their suffering had come to an end. Maybe anger at the world or whatever for allowing this to happen, and empathy for the parents. And something like awe and wonder, like there must be some kind of explanation for all of this which you don't yet understand. But patience too that things become more clear in time. And peace of mind because you're doing the best you can. And humble to be present at such a moment. All of the above, often all at once. So I like this uh, piece of writing because it's, it's such a great metaphor for our practice. You know, we're giving birth to ourselves, to our hearts, to our true nature. We're also letting go of certain aspects of ourselves. So there's both a, both a birth and a death in this, in this journey. And what that um, reading points to is also the uh, merging or the union of attention, awareness, and love, that they're not separate. That really what that, that those, those nurses and those people were practicing was the practice of attention, the practice of attention that's imbued with a loving heart. And perhaps today you can see perhaps get some inklings of how these two practices of mindfulness of awareness and kindness or compassion are not so separate. That we, they, we have very distinct practices and techniques for developing them. But ultimately, the, the, the point is to have an awareness that's suffused so fully with kindness and love, that they're not separate. That we meet the world with that spirit that compassionate attention to ourselves, to each other. There's a beautiful line from the Sixth Zen Patriarch that I really uh, find a lot of um, uh, inspiration from my own practice. He says, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness and kindness is the expression of awareness. So today, we are, we're using the support of our mindfulness practice to be the foundation for metta. And we'll see how metta, how kindness becomes the expression of that, the expression of awareness. And I'd like to reflect on the, the some of the constituents that make up a moment of attention are not so separate from the 
what makes up a moment of kindness. In a moment of attention, there's presence, there's awareness, there's a sense of allowing what is to be, to be, sense of acceptance, without acceptance we can't be with it, sense of non-judgment, allowing, interest, curiosity, openness, certain connectivity with the experience. And those, true, those things are all true in a moment of kindness and, and love, attention, allowing, openness, curiosity, atten- connection, intimacy. The poet Mary Oliver says, there is nothing in this world if I can pay attention to long enough that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So with the power of our attention, we can see this for ourselves. That if we pay attention to something, to ourselves, to another, to a situation long enough, when we, when we at least look, understand or work through the obstacles that may be interfering with that just simple clarity of attention, we see that a certain warm response is possible. The writer Henry Miller puts it this way. He said, this is when he began to paint, he said, and I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chip cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint again is to paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. And again, this is also a metaphor for our practice. When we bring this quality of beginner's mind, when we have a freshness of attention, we're really being with ourselves as we are, or being with another, or wishing love, kindness for our benefactor. There's that potential when we see, and as somebody said this today in the group, that we often get to um, uh, really see people for the first time without, without the uh, occlusion of our preferences or the, the intricacies of our relationship. And we just see this person as they are. This person was talking about their benefactor. And seeing the, their vulnerability and their humanness. And, um, and of course, that naturally uh, engenders a certain uh, quality of care or kindness. One of the things I've enjoyed about practicing at IMS in winter, I've done a lot of winter retreats here, and um, uh, seeing all the ladybugs huddled in the corner of the windows, particularly on the annex and the, the stairs, going, the, 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 the bridge going across to the annex. Have you seen the, the ladybugs here? They sort of cluster in corners, and I, I have no idea if they survive till the following year, but they damn well try, and hundreds of them. And it just, um, you know, being on retreat and being in that sen- more sensitized place, the, the heart just naturally, you know, warms, wants them to survive, wants them to to huddle and to live and to, to make it through this grueling winter, you know. Or whatever life we see here, what, you know, the, the squirrels or the chickadees or um, you know, the heart roots for life when it's open, when it's unobstructed. So,
this quality of this aspect of, of metta that I, one of the things I want to talk about is this quality of friendliness that's at the heart of metta has a very large range. So the heart has a very large range and how, how metta is talked about as a, as a quality in the practice has a large range. So the Buddha in the Metta Sutta um, talked about having a love that's boundless, that's able to cherish all living beings equally. It's like the quality of gentle rain that falls equally across all beings. That's a very profound, deep, expansive view of metta. And it's one potential, one, one capacity of our hearts to have that. I know that you've all been dwelling in that today all day, haven't you? But it's also something much more simple than that, much more, much more ordinary and everyday. Just that wish for the ladybug or the person who's sitting across from you in the dining room who looks glum or sad or, you know, we come into the hall and somebody's tearing or crying and the heart just naturally resonates, feels a, a response, feels a wish for that person to be happy, to be free of suffering, to be at ease. It's not, it's not something so esoteric. It could be simple as opening a door for somebody. You know, we do with the, the world functions on these ordinary everyday acts of matter. This is not something foreign to your experience, foreign to your heart. So this, there's a story I came across, or re- remembered recently. Um, it was a story about a competition. It was a children's competition. They had to see if they could find the kindest most compassionate child. Why they had this competition, I have no idea. But anyhow, you know, that kind of thing happens. So, um, and the story goes, this little boy, this four-year-old boy won the competition. And the story goes that he and his mom lived next door to this old couple that had been married for many, many years. And um, the, the woman died. So the, the man was, was, was grieving uh, the loss of his wife. And he would sit on his porch um, alone and looking very sad. And the boy would often be seen by his mom going up the garden path and uh, sitting in the old man's lap. And uh, at some point, the mother said to her son, she said, what do you you say to him? What's going on there? And he said, oh, I don't say anything. I just help him cry. Simple as that. I just help him cry. Sometimes... The intuition of a four-year-old knows more than we know. Sometimes the heart of metta looks like the, the very active quality of friendship. And the translation, one of the translations of metta is friendliness or friendship, Maitri, from the Sanskrit Maitri. And um, this, is, this is from uh, the Christian writer Henry Nguyen, um, who's speaking about friendship, but he's really talking about this fierce quality of metta. He said, the friend who can be with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, and who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face us with the reality of our situation, that is the friend who cares. So this quality of care that, that metta has is one that's not so fixated as we can often be to fixing 
and curing and meddling, but it has a spacious quality of allowing, of receptivity that can, it can tolerate the difficulty of just being with somebody's pain. So today we started the practice, and for those of you who are new, um, it often triggers some doubts when we talk about the qualities and the potential of metta practice, and then we come down to the actual practice, and it's just the saying of these very simple phrases. To the mind, it can be a little perplexing, like, this is really going to you know, make my heart open, this is going to you know, cultivate this boundless quality of love. May you be well, may you be happy, yada, yada, yada. May you be peaceful, may you be happy. It can seem so mechanistic and so simple and so formulaic. Yeah? How can this relate to me loving the world? But over time, as you will see that, as Sharon mentioned this morning, when we when we gather the power of this intention, this intention to wish well for ourselves and for others, it's a very powerful force in the mind and the heart and has tremendous uh, impact on our being and on the, the, the development of the heart. So the Buddha talked about there being 11 qualities or benefits of practicing metta. I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but I'll mention them um, because they're interesting uh, how he frames the, the, um, some of the, the, you could say, benefits or side effects of metta. So people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People will love them. Angels, however you understand angels or celestial beings, will love them, will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire will not harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused, and when they die, they're reborn in happier realms, happier states. So um, this is the test at the end of the seven days. We'll see if your faces are serene and clear. We'll ask you about your dreams and how you wake up in the morning and um, how you respond to the fire alarm when it goes off. <laughs> but those benefits aside, what's important is how it transforms our own heart. And uh, having done this practice a long time and also taught this practice for a while and having seen how it uh, does have a significant impact on our lives, um, it's, you know, have tremendous confidence in the practice, even though it's incredibly simple. So uh, somebody today in the group talked about an example of this uh, she had been practicing, she'd read some of Sharon's works and was hoping for one of those um, moments that Sharon spoke about yesterday of the, the your klutz but I love you moment. And sure enough, she was, after about doing meta about six months, she was driving and was late for work and was somewhat frustrated and, and anxious to get to work. And of course, as you always, when you're late for work, somebody's driving behind you really slowly. So she's in a 45 mile an hour zone and the person's driving 30 and she's getting more and more 
anxious, and then of course the person slows down to 25. <laughs> and the first thought that came up in her mind was, what the, may you be happy. <laughs> One of those, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> Not what she was expecting. So it happens, you know, that we, we plant these seeds, matter is planting seeds, we're sowing this, sowing the field of our hearts to, uh, to sprout these seeds, these seedlings, these very tender sprouts of kindness. So I've seen people how, how this practice allows people to become more self-accepting, uh, how to accept limitations, how to be more kind and responsive to their bodies, how to make more wise decisions about their livelihood and their relationships based on a more genuine sense of self-love. I was working with a, a woman, um, t- uh, I think on the last meta retreat, and she, was ta- she talked about how um, she, as she was doing the meta practice, there was this very hard nut, this knot, it felt like a nut in the core of her heart. And so we did some work and, and my encouragement was just to simply allow that, but also to sort of allow the, 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 that gentle rain-like quality of metta to permeate, to, to suffuse, to, to shower that, that hardness, not to make it go away, but just to allow that to be permeated. And over time she did that and what she noticed is that hardness softened and what took its place was this seedling that was growing into a kind of a tender sapling that had the sense of, movement and possibility. So we'll, know, we'll, we'll see the, the outflow of matter in different ways, uh, each according to our own heart and our own lives. I know um, in my own journey, um, I started with meta practice. Um, I started with mindfulness and meta at the same time. That's how I was instructed when I first started practicing in England in the 80s. And um, I was a I was a I was an angry young punk rocker uh, with my white mohawk and uh, just raging against the world. And I was 19 and mad with everything, and uh, and also mad with myself. I had a lot of self judgment and uh, a lot of self rejection and self hatred for whatever reason. Um, didn't like myself like a lot of people that I also met then and um, started doing meta practice. And for some reason, I just knew that this made sense to wish myself well with these phrases, with these intentions. And even though, like, like Sharon mentioned, it didn't seem like anything was happening, over time, I noticed this, what felt like an iceberg in my heart, in the center of my chest, thawing. And over the years, softening and um, just much greater capacity to be kind to myself, which seems like you think that would be a normal thing to do, but it's actually not so normal. You know, I think the, the suffering that I most see working with people as I've done these last 10 years is how brutal we are to ourselves, how, how, how cruel, how, how punishing. And so as we start with this foundation of self-matter, it's really, it's really, uh, powerful uh, foundation for any sense of well-being in our practice.
And I'll just add another story to that, which was um, sometime later in my practice, probably 12, 15 years into my practice, I went through a very difficult time, uh, what I call my dark year of the soul. And they sometimes call it dark night of the soul, but that was the quick version. I'm a slow learner, so it took me a while. Um, very, very painful. I started on retreat. I had a very difficult three-month retreat and couldn't really do the formal practice. And, and this, you know, I sort of was on my way to Burma. I was going to become a monk, and I had a lot of spiritual ego and was sort of full of myself. And, and life, you know, when you get a little too full of yourself, tends to remind you that you're not really as big as you think you are. And so I got a sideswipe from, from, from a lot of pain that I hadn't worked with in myself. And um, what was beautiful to see, not, not, it was incredibly excruciatingly painful, but what was left out of the sort of the, the ashes of all that was, um, was mm, all that was left was a kind responsiveness to the pain. That I wasn't trying to do it, I wasn't trying to be compassionate, I wasn't trying to be metaphor, it was just that was what was left out of doing all this practice for so many years. So it was very um, reassuring to me how, how these seeds that we practice that seem like they're not going anywhere for so long actually ripen and bear fruit. So why do we do this practice? Why do you do this practice? Why did you come on retreat to do a meta practice? And I imagine many of you were just curious, but also many of you are probably so acutely aware of the pain in the world, the pain in yourselves, and the suffering that we carry in our hearts, some inkling, some knowing that this might help transform that. And if we look around, there's tremendous suffering in the world, tremendous pain, mental, emotional, physical, relational, social, economic. Rumi says, one, does, one who does not run towards the allure of love walks a road where nobody lives. One who does not run towards the allure of love walks a road where nobody lives. So partly this, this orientation this cultivation of kindness uh, not only is the kindest thing to do for ourselves, but it also brings a lot of happiness and joy. That the heart that's content, that's at ease, is a heart that also has a much more greater capacity for joy, for well-being, for contentment. Having taught the last retreat, meta-retreat for scientists, I was doing a lot more research on um, some of the data that's out there on the research on compassion and loving kindness and empathy. And all through those studies, it's clear that people who have a strongly developed sense of kindness and self-care and self-compassion have a much greater uh, mental health, psychological health, access to peace, to joy, to well-being, to ease. Like it's, it's very um, substanti- substantive, the, the the data that's coming out. So as I mentioned, the, the, as we've mentioned, the, the practice on retreat, especially the first couple of days, isn't so easy. We're settling in, we're adjusting to being sleepy, to being restless, to being not so familiar with the schedule and with the form and with the food and not having our usual distractions and all that. 
And so we encounter what, what we, we often call the hindrances, these classical um, obstacles that come in meditation that you may have noticed. Anybody noticed any difficulties, any, any obstructions, obstacles to your practice? So the first one that we've spoke a little about is just the sleepiness and the dullness and the heaviness that we can encounter. You know, we have all these great expectations when we come on retreat, you know, bliss and light and love and joy and serenity. And we get here, we just, (laughs) our forehead is on our knees. (laughs) And it feels quite comfortable, actually. (laughs) Oh, eyes closed, doing nothing, sitting still, time for a nap. Well, you've been working really hard lately, so just give yourself a break, you know. I just came back from teaching Costa Rica, and they have a lot of sloths in Costa Rica, and they're such great beings, because then this, this hindrance is called sloth and torpor, you know. <laughs> We're just dead to the world for 23 and a half hours of the day. So, you know, sometimes that's tiredness from our lives. Sometimes it's because of resistance. We simply don't want to be here. We don't want to be with ourselves. We don't want to feel what's happening. We don't want to make the effort, because in the beginning, the meta practice takes a lot of effort. I always forget this when I do a meta retreat, that in the beginning, it's like we're, we're starting up a locomotive. And once it gets going, it's okay, but at the beginning, it just feels like a lot of work, and churning out these phrases and holding this person in mind. And mindfulness is looking really quite attractive at this point. <laughs> like, oh yeah, just sitting, being. <laughs> so... But of course, you know, if we did another day of mindfulness, meta would be looking quite attractive by the end of the day. <laughs> so, and one of the, the funny things about being sleepy on a meta retreat is we get to see it more, more clearly because we have to say these coherent phrases that oftentimes become somewhat incoherent as we get sleepy and drowsy, right? So maybe you've noticed the odd twisting and turning of phrases. I, I noticed them when I have a go. Someone told me on the last retreat, She kept saying, may I have contempt? May I have contempt? (laughs) And I always find myself saying, may I be hippy and dippy? (laughs) And a couple of other ones I remember, and there's many more, and I'm sure you've got plenty of your own. Uh, One is, may I be fretful in hell? (laughs) I think that was, may I be healthy, and who knows what that one was. And may may you look like peas. So the mind is a funny thing, you know. So when, you, when the phrases start coming like that, you know you're in sleepy sloth mode. So time to open your eyes, take some deep breaths, waken up, maybe do some walking practice outside, you know. So, and to be patient with ourselves. You know, we go through these you know, these periods of settling in, these waves of energy when sometimes there's a lot of brightness and the practice is flowing, other times it's very heavy and dull. Um, and to be graceful and, and uh, not to be hard on ourselves for these very natural flows of our body. Uh, one of the things that I, that I uh, have learned to do in recent years um, this came when I did a month retreat some years ago at Spirit Rock. And uh, I was again, it was the first few days of retreat, and I was just 
awed by how much work and effort it took. And then I, and I said to myself, well, wait a minute. They keep saying that, 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 that love is innate to the heart, that metta is really an innate quality of, it's, it's an aspect of our true nature, you could say. So why is it taking so much effort? How come I just don't rest in that knowing and allow the phrases to come from there? So and that's really how I do my metta practice now, is rather than trying to generate something and manufacture something through the production of phrases, I take time to settle into the heart, to rest into and trust into that natural quality of, of, of heart that is innately good, that innately wishes well. And remembering that, and then let the phrases spring from that in a very slow, very gentle way. So I find doing that, that I don't, the phrases don't dry up in the same way, it doesn't feel so rote. Um, I'll say a little more about that tomorrow in the instructions. It's also important to really keep a very active um, sense of the person that you're wishing metaphor. That, you know, to the, the brightness of the, of the image or the sense will help keep the energy up. And the opposite to that, as some of you have also been talking about swinging back and forwards from head on the knees to body running out of the room, you know, um, one, as one yogi put, I have a, she wrote me a note uh, recently, I have a monkey mind and a monkey body and everyone is getting on my nerves. What's up? I was fine before lunch. <laughs> exclamation mark, exclamation mark. This is the energy of restlessness. You know, we have too much energy. The mind's been spinning up into the future, catastrophizing. Our bodies had too much caffeine, or we just can't settle. It's too still, it's too quiet. And we want to run out of here. You know, anything but the breath, anything but these damn phrases. You know, please give me something. So again, it's just an imbalance of energy. We need to bring some calm, some ease, some soothing to feel perhaps a spaciousness of mind, to feel the sense of the whole body, to perhaps listen to sounds, or to do some walking practice in a place that's calming, walk really slowly or walk outside. Just listening to whatever allows your body to calm, feeling the the relaxation of the out-breath, things like that. Sometimes when things arise that are too, that are too preoccupying, too challenging to be with, then we, we simply switch from the meta practice and, to, and go back to mindfulness practice. So if the restlessness is really raging, we simply learn to be with it with mindfulness, with presence, accepting, opening, allowing. And often in the very meeting of that, like with the meeting of anything, it, when something is met, it allows it to soften, to ease, to open. So, the Buddha talked about um, with all the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas are these, these divine abodes, the quality of, of loving kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, of equanimity. And he said, with all of those qualities, there's both what he called a near enemy and far enemy, or near adversary and far adversary. And that's also what we count, encounter. Um, with doing this practice, but again, particularly at the beginning of the practice, um, maybe a lot of you have been noticing the far enemy or the far adversary of metta, which is hatred, which is resentment or anger or fear or rage or frustration or irritation. 
And because we start with ourselves, and because for so many of us, ourselves isn't the easiest place to start, that rather than feeling lots of matter, what we're feeling is loathing, or rejection, or judgment, or frustration, wishing that we were different, wishing that this wasn't happening, wishing we were somebody else. I always love that Lily Tomlin line, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. (laughs) So Oscar Wilde says, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. And you know how stormy love affairs can be. So um, it's both a beautiful thing to begin this love affair with ourselves, but it's also not so easy to be our own beloved because of the habits and conditioning that we've had in our lives. We often have very uh, difficult, strained, distorted relationship to ourselves and perception of ourselves. So often our orientation, as I'm sure you've been noticing, is perhaps critical or judgmental or comparing, seeing our faults, seeing our foibles, seeing all the things that's wrong with our practice or we feel bad for even giving ourselves the time of day for cultivating kindness towards ourselves. You know, maybe it's in, in, in whatever condition you've had, it's not okay to be self-cherishing. You know, it's a very common uh, hindrance as we do this practice. Or we judge ourselves and reject ourselves for feeling pain, for struggling with the practice. As if the initial pain isn't hard enough, then we beat ourselves up you know, perhaps we're feeling some loss or some grief or some loneliness from some ending of a relationship or a loss of a loved one. And then we, that, and then we come in and it's like, well, you should be over this already. How come you're still dealing with this? It's been two years now. Can't you move on already? And we add these layers of pain to what's already difficult. So one of the things that's really important is the quality of forgiveness, forgiving ourselves forgiving ourselves for our limitations, the limitations of our practice, for our limitations of our hearts. There's a saying that says, forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. Letting go of this endless trying to make the past better. Can we let go? Can we forgive? Can we move on? So one of the things that I notice very much on these meta courses is um, the presence of the critic of the judge, of the superego, of the, that aspect of our mind that likes to tell us how bad we are and how useless we are and how wrong we are and how pathetic we are and how much of a failure we are. Anybody notice a voice that's been critical these last couple of days? Just two hands, is that all? <laughs> the, 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 and, it's, and it's a voice that's often doubting of our practice oh yeah, you really want them to be happy? You really think that's like meta? You You really think you'll be kind? I know what you're really like. If only they knew what you're really like. So um, here's a a comic. It's really good to have a sense of humor about the critic because if if you don't laugh, it's not very funny. And um, it becomes really painful. And so 
and I'll talk a little about working with a critic in a minute, but this is called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. You may, you may um, resonate with some of these strategies that we get up to. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. You know, like the best yogi who's always sitting like an angel, you know, the one who's walking like you know, the Buddha. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. You've got nothing else to do on retreat, right? So, um, three more wrinkles. Oh, God. More gray hair. That's why it's good not to have glasses. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Very popular pastime on retreat. Those moments that just make you cringe and we keep bringing them up. That's called suffering. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Another popular pastime, especially people who, have, who share our last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And there's a picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, assign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. So with the critic, it's really important to learn the difference between the capacity of discernment and the capacity to judge. The critic inevitably leaves us with a sense of deficiency, a sense of lack, a sense of shame, a sense of unworthiness, a deflation, and hopelessness. It's a really happy character. Discernment is simply a clear evaluation of a situation. So as often happens at the end of a meditation, even though we don't encourage it, you'll, you, know, you might look back and go, oh, how was that meditation? The critic might say, waste of time. You should have stayed in bed. <laughs> Pathetic. Whereas the discernment might be, oh, I was really sleepy during that meditation. You know, I really, you know, if I, if I perhaps stand or, uh, you know, apply a little more effort, I might be more wakeful. And it's a simple evaluation, no judgment, no sense of shame, just a clear discernment. So it's important to, to see the distinction and, when, and to, to recognize whenever the judging mind is operating, to see it, to name it, to have space around it, to disidentify with it, to have some humor around it. Thank you very much. Thank you for your opinion. Goodbye. Go bother somebody else. Um, it's very helpful to uh, add a meta phrase at the end of a, a judgment. Oh, you're such a lousy meditator, and may I be happy. <laughs> you are such a slacker, and may you be happy. You know, we just so we're neutralizing the the. You know, we've we developed we've we've all developed these these thought grooves in the mind that have, have now become chasms and valleys. And the meta practice, particularly the use of the phrases, is basically developing new neural pathways, much much more positive, healthier, and also more true. And so the, the meta practice is one of the strongest antidotes that I know for working with the critic. And it's, you know, over time, and I've noticed this with myself, that um, there's a lot more space around the critic. There's a lot more, lot more responsiveness to, to, to come with kindness and acceptance and forgiveness. 
This is, um, this is a little vignette from the teacher Byron Katie, who um, it, it's remarkable for its, its absence of judgment. And you'll see as I read it, uh, just how uh, refreshing it is to approach the world in that way. Just when I think that life is so good that it can't get any better, the phone rings and life gets better. I love that music. How often do you feel that when you hear the phone go? As I walk towards the phone, there's a knock at the door. Who could it be? I walk towards the door, filled with the given, the fragrance of vegetables, the sound of the phone, and I haven't done anything for any of it. I trip over and fall accidentally. The floor is so unfailingly there. I experience its texture, its security, its lack of complaint. In fact, the opposite. It gives its entire self to me. I feel its coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little nap. <laughs> the floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back. You're deserting me, you owe me, you didn't thank me, you're ungrateful. No, it's just like me, it does its job, it is what it is. The fist knocks, the phone rings, the salad waits, the floor get, lets go of me, life is good. <laughs> so next time you trip over, <laughs> Remember how unfailingly the floor is there for you. <laughs> so you can see the radicalness of that, just to meet an, in, a, in a moment that we would normally completely feel humiliated and chastise ourselves and worry what everybody else is thinking and projecting all our judgments out to, oh, this is just the next thing. And that's the fusion of, of, of mindfulness and metta right there. So this is another poem. Uh, that speaks to um, what happens as we start shifting away from this habitual negative orientation towards ourselves and start to meet ourselves seeing ourselves, perhaps as we start to see the other people in the different categories that we'll be wishing metaphor, we start to see ourselves perhaps from a different vantage point, one that's more kind, more caring, and ultimately more accurate. It's from Derek Walcott, called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here and eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. So we turn this near enemy of hatred inward. We turn it outwards, of course. What we do inward, what goes out. So we might find ourselves sitting in the dining room or in our meta practice, feeling a lot of antagonism or coolness, or aversion, or resistance. Or we notice we're judging everybody who walks into the meditation hall for the, what they're wearing, or how they're sitting, or how they're walking, or how much they're eating, or not eating. We just see how the, the mind in that contracted place of aversion, everything is filtered through that lens. And so we see the world with hostility. 
And it's a very painful place because we, we feel in that moment, as you know, we feel very separate. We feel very isolated. We feel um, uh, very distant from that sense of connection. And, it's, and it can be, it can be um, isolating. We sometimes call it the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, we have a Vipassana romance where we fall in love with somebody and you know, marry them and have kids and move to Miami. And just on the basis of the fact that your shoes are having to be next to each other every time you go out of the hall. You know. <laughs> we have the opposite, which is the Vipassana Vendetta, which is, you know, somebody happened to be walking in my walking place. You know. How didn't they know this was my walking spot? This is my bowling alley. I always walk in the bowling alley when I'm here. Don't they know? And then we see them taking a lot of food at the lunch table. And I knew it. I knew that. <laughs> and we start building this whole case like we're going to go to court, you know, and nail them, you know. And building up this sort of fuel for our hatred and our resentment and you know, and then maybe one day we walk in and we see them crying and it just shatters that whole illusion of what we thought they were, you know, or we hear them talking in a group and we hear that they've just lost their child or something like that. And we suddenly shatters that illusion of separation and judgment. This is from Charlie Brown, great teacher of matter. And this, in fact, this is about the Far enemy. Lucy says, I hate everything. I hate the whole world. Charlie, I thought you had inner peace. Lucy, I do. But I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> so another form of um, this, this uh, far enemy is the, is the presence of fear. And the fear is another one of those things that those core contractions of our ego structure that makes us feel separate, makes us feel distant, makes us feel threatened, makes us feel alone, makes us feel self-protective. And again, it's a very suffering, contracted place. And the Buddha originally taught the metta practice, so we're told, um, to monks who were practicing in the forest, and they were so frightened by the the feeling in the forest, and the forest in those days were full of wild animals and robbers and murderers and, 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 and the belief in spirits and tree spirits and whatnot. And they were so um, uh, scared by practicing there, they went to the Buddha for guidance. And he said, I'll give you this practice, which is all the protection you need. And it was the practice of loving kindness to wish love and kindness for all beings, and particularly in the forest. And they went back and they practiced and it really worked. This is from the, from the Sagadatta. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. This really is the quintessence of matter. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it because you're afraid of it. This alienation causes fear, and the fear deepens the alienation. 
It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization, full self-understanding can break it. So another um, obstacle to our practice is um, the near enemy, the near adversary. I don't really like the word enemy because we're not really at war. So uh, the near adversary, um, which is uh, the quality of um, love that's mingled with attachment, that has some strings to it, that has some attachment to it, that has some requirements on it. And of course, we're much more familiar with this quality of love, both in the receiving of the love that we may have been given and also in our our own experience in relationships. Because this capacity to have an unconditional quality of love, particularly in the realm of human relationships, is very, very rare and very, very difficult because of the nature of how um, how the mind moves to getting vested and attached to wanting things to be a certain way, wanting someone else to be a certain way, wanting the relationship to be a certain way. So in the the popular notion of love in our culture, uh, it's one of the reasons why we use the word metta rather than love, even though love shares some of these beautiful qualities, the, the common usage of the word love is so mixed in our culture. So you know, pop songs, you know, I love you if you love me, and if you love me more, I love you more. And, you know, it often love is regarded as some kind of trade, some kind of barter, you know. Or um, it's used in, in advertising, you know. I love my new Prius, you know. And my, my dry cleaners has on the a sticker, a big love, a big heart, on red heart on the door. It says, we love our customers. You know, would they still love me if I went next door to the other dry cleaner? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's conditional. <laughs> you know, or the Valentine's, you know, you're luckily missing the whole Valentine's, you know, show, you know. Um, you know not that there's the, the, the root of that. It's a very beautiful, you know, quality, but the, the commercialization of it, the hallmarkation of it, I was once coming here to teach uh, a meta retreat, and there was there were, the dates were different, so it was um, Valentine's was before the retreat, and I was listening. I was in the taxi listening to the radio, and there was this ad that came on, and it, it was this long ad for <clears throat> Valentine's, and if you really love your partner, yada yada yada, um, you can give the 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 gift of uh, vouchers for plastic surgery. <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting gift to give to your loved one. You know, I love you, honey, but here, get a nose job. <laughs> you know, or a tummy tuck or whatever, you know. So it's not quite this idea of unconditional love. And we can see it when we do the meta practice. You know, we, we can find ourselves wishing meta or choosing people on the basis of this condition, on, on this love that's conditional. I'll love you if you, you know, are nice to me. I, may you be happy so you'll be nicer to me. May you be you know, free from suffering so you stop harming me and being less ob- obnoxious in the office. And may you be at peace so you stop annoying everybody. And this is not, this is not matter. This is attached, conditioned. Or we start putting it on our practice. May I get this 
practice by Friday. May I, may I have unconditional love by tomorrow? You know, it doesn't work that way. So we find ourselves comparing. You know, how's my meta practice doing? You know, you listen to, you hear people in groups, wow, that person sounds like they're really getting it. You know, I hope they don't get it too much. Like, can they downplay it a little bit? <laughs> I, was, I was doing a long retreat here, and uh, it was a meta retreat. And I was interviewing with Sharon and um, uh, Joseph. And for some reason, we were being interviewed in pairs. And I was interviewing with a friend of mine, and we would both give our reports. And um, uh, my friend's practice was just flying. (laughs) The matter was flowing, the absorptions were flowing, and everything was just groovy. And my own practice didn't feel so good. And every t- every interview, I'd slightly cringe, hoping a practice hadn't elevated to the next level. <laughs> so with all this bhavana, with this cultivation, it's very easy um, to to think that we're cultivating something that's not part of who we are. You know, it's so easy for the for the mind to think, oh, I've got to get this thing. I've got to I've got to somehow conjure it, as opposed to sensing that it's already within us. That this quality is an innate, natural outpouring of the heart. And mostly, what we're doing is we're we're inclining the mind, we're inclining the attention. We're orienting the heart. We're setting up the conditions to allow this quality to flow. Whether that's through the phrases, through the through the through calling to mind different people, and to remember this, to remember that this 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 quality that we're developing is something that's really already within you. You know it. You feel it. You've sensed it. You've experienced it. You've manifested it. It may not feel so readily accessible, which is why we practice it and deepen it. But if you think about things, times in your life when you've heard about some suffering like the tragedy in Haiti, for example. You know, I imagine all of you at one time or other listening to those stories and those broadcasts and seeing those images. You know, the heart was just naturally pulled, just felt the tug of empathy and concern and compassion and, and, and wish that that wasn't happening, the wish that this country that's been so battered and devastated for centuries particularly the last century, just that wish, the heart's wish, is so naturally there. So with all of these challenges, these obstacles, and I'm going to close in a minute, um, it's important to remember that metta is an attitude of heart. It's an attitude that we can bring to any moment, to any experience. And so whatever difficulty you're in, whether it's the body falling asleep, the, the, the body being restless, the body being in pain, the heart being in pain, the, the contraction of hatred and fear, the grasping after a certain experience, the self-judgment, the loathing. To remember that the, the matter is an attitude that we can bring to any experience. We suffuse the attention with kindness. So we hold all of that with a kind attention. And as soon as we've turned towards those difficulties with that kind lens of matter, 
we're in that moment less entangled, we're less caught. The thing might not dissolve, the hatred or the fear might dissolve, but we're imbuing it with a, with a softness, with an openness, and it makes it much more tolerable, much more workable. Rumi said, Rumi wrote, if God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, if God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling I would not bow to. So I know somebody read The Guest House today, which was a beautiful way of another, another Rumi poem of how we can orient towards these difficult experiences of welcoming and inviting them in, you know, meeting them at the door laughing, maybe not laughing, but at least meeting them at the door, welcoming them in, not blaming, not judging, not rejecting. Oh, sorrow is like this. Fear is like this. And tomorrow, um, Gina will talk more about how this, this quality of kindness as we turn towards the suffering nature of our experience becomes a natural outflow of compassion or care or concern or empathy. And so um, at times when you're, when you're uh, in your practice and the, 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 you get overwhelmed by fear or sadness or sorrow or grief, it's at, at, at times it's appropriate to adjust the phrase to respond. It's at times when we're really going through the mill of pain to, um, to wish ourselves happiness in that moment doesn't feel so attuned. And we can, we can slightly adjust the phrase, may I be free of suffering, may I be at ease with this pain. So our practice becomes responsive. So you don't mind if I go on for three more hours, do you? Just kidding. So um, maybe I'll just close with that, with that, with that um, remembering that our practice ultimately is supporting us to learn how to meet the moment with kindness, with, ca- with a caring attention. One Zen master was asked, you know, how, you know, on his deathbed, he said, how do you summarize Zen, enlightenment? He said, it's an appropriate response. And this practice of metta becomes an appropriate response to the moment. When we can respond to the moment with this heartful, caring attention, that is a beautiful uh, point in our practice. So let's sit together for a few moments.
This is a poem from Hafez, speaking to this boundless quality of heart that's possible in any moment. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. So thank you for your attention. We'll have some walking practice for about 25 minutes, and then we'll come back for some sitting and chanting.